Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic teens and adults become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. We've come a long way, but still have a long way to go in terms of educating the world about experiences of autistic people. Autistic characters in modern media are uh, really important because they can educate neurotypical people about the experiences of autistic people if it is a well-thought-out character. In this episode, we discuss this and much more with Dr. Jen Malia. Dr. Malia is an autistic author, mother, advocate, as well as an English professor currently at Norfolk State University. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, I wanted to kind of start with you and learn where your story um, relating specifically to the autism community begins. So I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at 39 years old. At the time, um, I had my, my middle child, she was two years old. And I noticed that she had a lot of um, behaviors that I didn't think were explained by just the language delay that I was told by professionals. So what I ended up doing is um, really hundreds of hours of medical research to try to help her and figure out what was going on. And what it led me to was just this understanding of what um, the autism spectrum entailed. I had no idea that, you know, it never occurred to me that my daughter or myself um, were on the autism spectrum, but that research led me to understand that. And then at that point, it was a matter of finding a clinical psychologist that was familiar with gender differences with autism, because that's what I, you know, learned was so, um, made it so difficult for me to really see that, that that was what was going on. Um, we were both diagnosed on the same day. And then a year later, my son was also diagnosed by the same clinical psychologist. And my oldest daughter, um, I have a four-year-old, a six-year-old, and a seven-year-old, but my oldest daughter is now going through diagnostic testing as well. Now, you mentioned about finding a clinical psychologist that understands uh, the different gender differences. Was that a challenging process to find such a person? Yeah, it was, because I think um, initially when my daughter was, when I was told she had a language delay, the, the problem was that no one really could see beyond that. And even when I brought up autism spectrum disorder with a, um, a pediatrician and then a developmental pediatrician, because she had good eye contact, they eliminated autism spectrum disorder to be considered. So a lot of the stereotypical traits a lot of people think of being uh, representative of being on the autism spectrum. When you don't have those, sometimes you're um, overlooked for a diagnosis. I've talked to women who were diagnosed as an adult, um, many that, that were mothers. They, they've often talked to me about how it changed their outlook in terms of motherhood. Uh, I was wondering, uh, and then many times for the better, uh, how has that process been for you in terms of are, do you feel like you're a better mother since the diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that having gone through my whole life 
with challenges I just didn't have a name to. I always felt like I was different, but I just didn't know what it was. And things got very overwhelming as I went through different life challenges. Like you start out having challenges that are different as a child than you do when you when you enter school. And then I went to college and graduate school, all of this time not being diagnosed. And then I also got married before I was diagnosed. And so it was after, and I had my three children before I was diagnosed. And so with each life challenge, I, um, it got more and more overwhelming because being an undiagnosed, you know, autistic mother, things started to hit a breaking point. It was, it got to the point where things were so overwhelming and I didn't really know why. So that after I got that diagnosis, it not only helped me better understand myself and what I could do to help myself be a better mother who understood the challenges of that, but also to help my kids because I was able to see the things that they were doing that were similar that, you know, I had done either, you know, as a child, and I could help them having that understanding of, you know, what it meant to have difficulty with things like flexibility or social skills, um, even things like executive functioning that, you know, a lot of times people associate more with ADHD, but with, um, there's a lot of research that shows that girls have significant executive functioning um, when they're on the autism spectrum. And for me, that was one of my main challenges. And to give a simple definition of it, it's really just the way the brain organizes information. So I had a lot of challenges with that. And being overwhelmed, um, you know, could lead to things like autistic meltdowns for not only me, but my kids. And having that understanding um, helped me very much with uh, being a better mother for them. Now... I know you've talked about something in the past that I think needs to talk be talked about more, especially uh, with people that are diagnosed as adults. You, you mentioned that you've unknowingly hid your autism traits before receiving a diagnosis. What were some of those traits that you feel that you hid? Yeah, I think that, um, so going back to kind of the idea of um, autistic females having different autistic traits, or at least ones that are um, maybe less commonly known. Um, so one of the things that I think a lot of autistic females like myself and my, my daughter are good at is masking our autistic traits. And it, it's unknowingly, before I was diagnosed, I didn't know I was doing this. But when you have this sense that you are, you are um, having trouble fitting in and you want to, you know, socialize with other people, even if you don't quite know how, or you feel like your body language is a little different than what everyone else is doing, or you have trouble with eye contact, but you want to make it seem like you're, you're, you know, you're intent on um, paying attention. I would do things like start looking at noses and uh, mouths instead of eyes to kind of make it seem like I was looking in the right direction. I would be um, more conscious of like how I was, you know, even if I didn't want to, you know, sit a certain way or, you know, just trying to find a way that was going to look more typical. And I think a lot of times those, those kinds of traits that, um, that I was, like I said, unknowingly hiding, now that I have the diagnosis, I'm a lot more forgiving of myself that I, I originally didn't know why. Why can't I just, you know, act the same way that other people do? And I think a lot of times, too, with my kids, when I'm seeing them flapping or spinning and stimming and all these things, those were things that, for me, you know, as a child, um, I was trying so hard to not 
do those things, and, and that, you know, really made it difficult for me growing up. Um, I even wrote a, a piece for New York Magazine about how it was to be dating on the autism spectrum and having difficulty with things like, um, you know, my husband and I, we connected on Facebook because for me it was a lot easier to, um, to, to even have social interactions via Facebook than in person. Um, we had known each other in high school. We went to high school together and never talking or communicating because back in high school I was especially, um, you know, I was like a fly on the wall most of the time, not communicating much with other people. And, and so at that time, you know, I, I reconnected with them almost 15 years later with a Facebook message. And, you know, we were able to not only, you know, have um, communication on social media, but then eventually meet up in person. And, you know, the rest is history. I was married to three kids after that. So. Now, since your diagnosis, you've become an, an amazing advocate, not only for others, but for yourself as well. Um, I know one of the ways you've advocated for yourself is in the workplace. So when you became an English professor at Norfolk State, you weren't initially diagnosed with autism. How has the university responded to you disclosing this information? Yeah, um, it's interesting because my, so my career started with, I got a PhD at the University of Southern California. Then I went to the American University of Sharjah and became an English professor there for four years, living in um, Dubai. Then I came to Virginia and started working as a professor at Norfolk State University. And I was about two years into my tenure track program when I got, my daughter and I were diagnosed with autism. And so at that point, it, was, um, it wasn't actually something I immediately disclosed. I have to admit that it wasn't something that I, you know, I, what I had done is to prepare for potential, uh, potentially notifying my employer. I had a letter that said, to whom it may concern, and it listed the challenges that I had with my autism spectrum disorder, and I sort of have that ready to present to the human resources in the event that I thought I needed it. But at that time, my opinion was, well, if I don't really have any particular accommodations to ask for, is it really necessary for me to do that? And so at first, I only disclosed that I had, um, that my daughter was on the autism spectrum because it made it easier for me to get accommodations in terms of like a flexible schedule to accommodate for therapy appointments and things of that nature because that was something that I felt that I did need. And um, I have to say that the university had always been really supportive with just having young children and not giving these schedules where I had to teach in the evenings or on weekends. And so it was a very easy ask at that point. And then um, as, you know, as I started to become more of an advocate in my writing, it would have been easy for anybody to see just from my publications and personal essays revealing that I was autistic Well, it was it was something that, you know, I started presenting at conferences and workshops and had publications. And so it was out there, although still not officially with, um, you know, with the university's human resources. But I, so I didn't ask for accommodations originally for myself, but I came to, to understand that it wasn't something that I needed to keep hidden. And I think that's something that a lot of autistic adults maybe feel like their employer isn't going to react well to the situation or that you might be, you know, I was still on the tenure track working towards 
becoming a tenured professor, you know, how would that affect my, you know, my ability to get permanent employment? But I think through my advocacy and my writing and understanding better that, you know, I shouldn't be ashamed of, I, I was, you know, at first it was, it was, it was never anything I was ashamed of, but it was something that I felt like if I could just, you know, get by without having to disclose that, maybe I don't need to. But since then I have, you know, not only through my writing, but also have had to ask for accommodations at like graduation ceremonies, having trouble with like wanting to spend at the end of the line, so I didn't have to be kind of um, feeling claustrophobic or too loud noises with speakers and things like that. So I have had to ask for little, little things, you know, at my employer. Do you feel like the all the writing you've done has helped you in the advocacy process? Yeah, absolutely, because I, I think that something that I didn't realize about myself, at least not consciously throughout my life, is that the way I communicated was through writing primarily. And I think now that I'm, I'm more of a public speaker now because when I became a teacher, I had to sort of access that part of my, like it became a necessary thing. I, I did a PhD program, I was kind of thrown into a teaching position. And for me, public speaking was something that was really difficult. In high school, I couldn't even do it. I mean, I, I had so much trouble with public speaking. And then as a teacher, I got more, you know, able to do it. But for me, writing was always my strength in terms of being able to communicate. I was writing things down and processing things through writing. So for me, it was a natural way for me to advocate by using um, my writing, you know, the essays that I've written for newspapers and magazines and um, now children's books. Now, I think as an English professor that words and how things are said are pretty important to you. Therefore, where do you come out on identity and person-first language when talking about yourself and other autistic people? Yeah, this is, I think, really interesting because it's, it's really controversial, I think, in terms of different groups that have, you know, different opinions on this. And I sort of find myself somewhere in the middle on this in that I'm okay with both person-first and identity-first language but I prefer identity-first language. And so when I refer to myself as an autistic person, autistic mother, autistic woman, um, that's what I prefer. And when I write, I, I often use that language unless the publisher doesn't allow it. Like um, some examples, like the New York Times wrote, when I wrote an article, it was a Muppet with autism rather than an autistic Muppet, and it was partly because of the style of the publication. But I, I see it from both sides, partly because I feel like when I'm, when I consider the challenges that I have, like being, having things like when I have an autistic meltdown and I'm really overwhelmed, I think of myself more as a, a person with autism or a mother with autism. And then when I think more about kind of how I identify as a, everything that I experience in the world is through an autistic lens and that I can't separate the autism from who I am. That part, when I'm thinking of um, all the ways in which I have strength because of my autism, then I think of myself more as an autistic person or autistic mother. And I, my, my Twitter handle Mom with Autism, not because I preferred it, because that was what was available, but I don't have any sort of um, anything, I, I guess. I can see it from both sides. Do you ever get feedback on your Twitter handle name? 
Absolutely, I I, um, I do. There's sometimes some some um, especially members in the autistic community who didn't feel that you know using the person person first language you know as an autistic person myself that that was appropriate and you know I. I actually even wrote an article about it for Parent Map, where I talked about, you know, exactly what I just explained, where I see it from both sides. And I've noticed that there's a lot of autistic mothers, or sorry, not autistic mothers, but um, mothers of autistic children with um, kids who have more a more severe form of autism that prefer person-first language, and also the medical community does as well. And so I, I can see it from both sides, but... I, I completely understand that, you know, those who prefer identity first language, that, you know, they, I think though that each person should decide for themselves what they prefer. And so, like I said, I prefer identity first, but I don't have any problem with anyone who wants to use a person first language to talk about that. Now, in doing uh, research uh, to interview you today, I wrote, I read uh, many wonderful articles that you wrote about your experiences as an autistic woman that have appeared in publications like the New York Times, New York Magazine, the Washington Post, just to name a few. One article that I really enjoyed was when you talked about how the character of Dr. Temperance Brennan, also known as Bones, was the only character like you on TV. So, how did you feel like the two of you are similar? Yeah, the, um, I thought the character, it was a show that I really enjoyed watching before. I knew that I was on the autism spectrum, and so I thought it was really interesting that once I got my diagnosis, that there was this character I had always enjoyed that I really identified with, and then I could see, you know, these autistic traits in her once I had, you know, learned more about it. Um, and some of those included anything from just her social interactions on the show, um, having difficulty with nonverbal communication, a lot of the sort of misunderstandings she has with her love interests on the show, you know, either because of nonverbal communication or just like the way she would interpret things really literally, as I do. Um, also, she had more of a kind of monotone voice that um, I think I have sort of worked on that over my course of my life, but um, I have had lots of student comments over the years that have told me I have a more monotone voice, and so in order to make my lectures more interesting for students, I think I worked on that quite a bit, but it's just those little things, the little nuances, um, her hyper-focused interest as well, so she had, um, you know, forensic psychology was her her main interest on the show, and I, you know, as a PhD, I had a specialty in 19th century British literature and Gothic fiction, and so those kinds of hyper-focused interests that, um, you know, that someone who I think pursues a PhD, in general, you know, you have to have a hyper-focused interest, but to the extent that she does in that show, you know, it's a very, very much a, a hyper-focused kind of take on it. A, a much younger female character with autism on television is Julia from Sesame Street, which you wrote an article about it as well. What would you say this character represents to you and your family? I was really, um, I was really glad that Sesame Street decided to have an autistic Muppet on the show because it's not only it, it represents, um, 
think autistic children need to see role models on TV, especially at the preschool level, because it introduces them to, you know, whether you have autistic children watching it or um, other kids that um, either have siblings on the autism spectrum or, or um, have friends at school that might be autistic. Having those role models from an early age, I think, are really important. So with my kids being, you know, the preschool audience watching that show when um, the autistic mother was introduced, it really meant a lot to my family to have that kind of representation. And the fact that she's an autistic girl, I think, is really important, too, because we have very few autistic females um, represented in TV. And I think that, you know, the Sesame Street show is an autistic girl, you know, being that statistically one girl for every four boys are diagnosed with autism, just allowing, um, you know, the audience to understand that, you know, maybe, even though there's this kind of stereotypical view that that um, that only boys are autistic, no, there are, in fact, you know, quite a few girls who are, you know, either overlooked for a diagnosis or, you know, this, just being aware of the fact that there are autistic girls as well. Now, Bones is not a character currently on TV anymore. So other than Julia, are there currently any characters on TV that you feel are a good representation of the autistic experience? Yeah, as I already mentioned, um, there aren't a lot of autistic females that I know on, on TV. There are occasionally um, you know, movies that might depict an autistic woman. But there, I, I would say that there are... Um, there, there needs to be a lot more of what I see as the middle ground with, to think about the autism spectrum. A lot of times we're either, the stereotype is either, you know, someone thinking about Rain Man um, or an autistic savant. So, like, there's not a whole lot of, I think, middle ground in terms of representing the spectrum. And so what I, what I see is a lot of times the stereotypes that we think of, um, coming across in TV representation. So we have with Atypical, a teenage boy, and the other show that um, that I have seen, um, The Good Doctor, I think is a good representation. Even though it does kind of perpetuate the autistic savant um, kind of stereotype to a certain extent, I do feel like um, when I'm watching that show, I'm able to identify with the characters, and I think that it does do a pretty good job of showing some of the autistic traits um, that, you know, that he has as a surgeon on the show, but sort of integrating his difficulties and challenges with social communication, but how he's able to navigate the workplace and things like that. To me, I was able to identify with a lot of that, even though he is, um, you know, not a, a female autistic person. But I do think that there's a lot more room for more variation in the way that autistic characters are representing, represented on TV or in film or even in books. So um, I'm hoping that there will be more shows that have autistic females represented. How, how important do you feel that um, actually autistic people are the ones playing these characters on TV? Yeah, I think that would be... Um, that, that hopefully will be something that we'll see because that, that is, I think, a big issue. And especially in the autistic community, you, you see a lot of um, 
a lot of people, you know, commenting on Twitter about how, you know, they're not, they don't like particular characters, and I agree with them, because there, there is something missing, there's something lacking, and I feel the same way about literature, I think that you can, you can, um, when you, when I read a book that's written by an actually a thick author, or, you know, watch, you know, if I'm watching TV, sometimes those little nuances, it's easy to tell that there's something lacking there, that it's not as authentic as it could be. So I do think it's important. Um, and I think that there are, there's a lot of room for improvement with that, where we, we, we can see um, autistic, it would be great to see autistic actors playing the role of autistic people, like I said, on TV and film. And I do think that's an important next step. Now, you aren't just educating the world through your articles, but also through an upcoming book you've created called Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism, which is about a girl who has to overcome her fear of sticky hands to participate in her second grade slime experiment. Where was your motivation in bringing a book like this to the world? Yeah, so I mentioned briefly that there aren't a lot of, um, or that there could be more actually autistic authors writing books. And so for me, you know, that it wasn't actually something I ever thought I would be doing in the sense that kids, uh, kids writing a children's book was not something I um, immediately thought of, of doing. I mean, even with young children, reading lots of children's picture books, it wasn't something that I ever thought of doing. And uh, the opportunity came up because after I had written a lot of these um, personal essays for magazines and newspapers, I, I had a lot of connections with the on, online community of writers. And um, I had a, a writer friend who introduced me to an illustrator, and her name's Joanne Lou Freyhoff. She's actually the illustrator for, for the book, She's Sticky. But she, she introduced me to an editor, Albert Whitman, and when they, you know, reviewed sort of the essays that I had written, they asked me if I would be interested in potentially writing a book with um, an autistic girl as the main character. And so I, um, I mean, I jumped out the opportunity. I thought it was um, a wonderful way for me to write a book that I thought would be um, really important for my, you know, for my children and also, you know, the whole autistic community to have this kind of representation. And so when I, when I wrote the book, I wanted it to be a book that wasn't just a book that kind of raises awareness about autism, like what is autism, or have a character where she, she needs a lot of help from siblings to, you know, sort of navigate the world. I wanted the character to be a strong um, autistic girl who was going about her everyday life, you know, going through her school day, having challenges with um, her, you know, the autistic traits, like in terms of her social communication, having trouble with sensory issues from the stickiness of the slime, and to have a really strong interest in science. So she has a really good knowledge of the science of slime in the book. And what I wanted to do with this is basically to have a book that showed a very positive representation of autism. Well, Jen, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you to Jen for the conversation. Did you know so often autistic teens and adults struggle with anxiety and as a result don't have success in their lives? 
Autism Personal Coach is a unique service in that we help our clients by working on meaningful, individualized goals so their anxiety is greatly reduced and as a result they can become more independent and successful. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself to achieve your goals or dreams, it's very easy. All you have to do is email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Kate Oswald, the autistic travel coach. Talk to you then. Just like